Winterhawk Podcasting presents Lower 48. Episode 6, Corridor. Hey, what's up, Cammie? Hey, Cammie. Um, so we're down in Macon, Georgia. Yeah, it's uh, uh, sweltering. Yeah. So we have some exciting updates for you. This is this is probably the biggest and most important thing that we've, we've done. We've done so far on this trip. <laughs> Since uh, we, well, you had us pivot on what we were doing for this podcast. Yeah, pivot's a nice word. To yeah, we... Uh, you know, we kept following Tibbs's journal, and um, we found some really cool stories for you, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, but we felt like we were kind of just treading water a little yeah, bit, you know? Yeah, listen, we uh, we took an opportunity to really focus on our work. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> I think we did mention it in our last call, but there, um, in, in the Tibbs journal, we found a reference to a bookstore in Georgia and the Greenboro Bookstore. Yeah, and we Googled it, um, and we found out that it's still open. It's still there. So that was where we decided to go next. So we drove down, and we made it into town, and we went to the bookstore. And when we walked in, there was just this ancient guy. Dude, like, old doesn't even begin to cover. Yeah. Like, I thought he was dead. He was sitting behind the counter. Yeah, he looked behind like a Halloween ca- skeleton. Yeah, behind the cash register. And we went up and, you know, we there was like a little bell there, so we dinged it a couple times and he didn't move. We were like, I Is this man dead? Yeah, I like held my fingers out under his nose to see if he was breathing. Nothing. Like that's how like little movement he was making. I couldn't even feel his breath. But then finally Zach went and tapped on his shoulder. And he just jerked awake. I was like an inch away. My face was like an inch away from his face. <laughs> and it scared me so bad. Dude, he jumped so high. <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to talk to him. And quite frankly, between his heavy, like, Savannah accent <laughs> and apparently our completely incomprehensible accent, yeah, he like, we could not understand each other. <laughs> and so we kind of, we were trying to tell him why we were there. We pulled out the journal and we kind of showed him what it was, and he, he couldn't... It was like he couldn't really see what we were showing it to him. He was so old. He was so old. And um, so finally, he did recognize, I think, the word Tibbs. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we pointed out Caleb Tibbs, yeah. Caleb Tibbs, and he finally was like, oh, Tibbs. He, he like stood up and just kind of shuffled into the back. And we so we stood there by the counter for a second, just not really knowing what to do. But he didn't come back, so we just followed him. <laughs> we just followed him into the back, and I don't think that he's moved much in the back in, like, 30 or 40 years. No. It was old boxes covered in dust. I think I saw a Reagan Bush sticker, like, yeah. stuck to, like, one of the boxes in the back. Are you, you sure know? it didn't say, we like Ike? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just like, it was a kind of a cool experience. Like, I love that kind of stuff. I wanted to just dig through every box in there. But he kind of was gesturing us over. So we went over to him, and he pulled 
out of a drawer into this little desk in the back, he pulled a first edition copy of Corridor, Tibbs' third book. Yeah, it, which is insane because those those books go for about three hundred dollars on yeah. eBay right now. And it was pristine. Like I think it had been in that drawer since publication. It was so beautiful. Like that 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 hand drawn like dust cover yeah. you know art from the eighties. Yeah. Like it's so cool. So he handed it to us and And then just walked away. <laughs> so we just kind of we cracked it open. We didn't want to like bend the spine. So we just kind of like let it kind of ease open a little bit didn't open it fully and right in the front by the front cover there was an envelope so we pulled this envelope out it wasn't sealed or anything it was just kind of open there were about four or five pages yeah and cammy you will not believe what this letter said the letter is addressed to his editor charlie and it's dated 1993 so he wrote this the year he disappeared dear charlie if you are reading this letter, then I assume that you were able to decode my cipher. I wish to apologize first, my old friend. I could not allow the information I uncovered to fall into the wrong hands. That is why I have ceased correspondence with you and Nancy. My communications are being monitored, both through the telephone and the mail. Please forgive me. My hope is that this letter will provide you with more understanding of why I made the choices I have, though I don't leave a complete account here. However, at the end of my writing, I will include more information that the cipher will help you understand. As an author, I have always sought inspiration in the depths of human existence, in the hidden corners where secrets fester. When I initially wrote The Dark Child in 1978, I did so purely out of imagination. I naively thought that this act of creation was nothing more than an expression of talent. The success of that first novel propelled my ego to new heights. It wasn't until two years later that I began the process to create Sharon's grave, and that's when I realized that creation wasn't innate. That was the hardest I ever worked on a story, not because it was a masterpiece but because the muses that fueled my work had fled, leaving nothing but a hole in my heart, with a soulless story adorning the shelves of airports all over the country. It was then I decided to embark on a foolish endeavor. If my stories wouldn't come to me, then I would have to go to where the stories resided. You know as well as I do how that first journey ended even though I was effectively homeless and penniless, having spent all of the funds and goodwill I had earned from the Dark Child, I had discovered my story. Thus, the corridor was created. An expression of my knowledge mixed with that of whom I had met on my travels. Corridor's success stands as a testament to the power of knowing true fear. I realized then that if I were to continue to make a living writing horror, then I needed to find inspiration in the depths of human experience. Unfortunately, I realized all too late that just as the depths of the ocean produce creatures beyond our understanding, so does the pressure of incredible fear. As I began my second journey, I decided to establish myself a little better than my previous attempt. That is to say, 
I actually made a plan as to where I would go and where I would stay. I know that to you, Charlie. It may have seemed just as half-cocked and half-assed as my first tour, but I knew that this would be the best opportunity to truly learn what lies in the hearts of men. My trek proved informative, albeit a little shallow. I spoke with numerous people, asking them about their lives, what they did, who they loved, and most importantly to me, what they were afraid of. Time and time again, the answers came out as if I had told a joke. They would say, spiders of course, or ghosts spook me. But all these answers felt vapid to me. Surely one could be startled by a spider, but to say that one filled you with dread would be childish. I began to feel discouraged during my second month of my travels. Where was that existential horror? Where was the spark that I was looking for? I traveled a while longer, moving from state to state. I decided to stop in upstate New York. I had found a small apartment in Utica that allowed me to pay month to month. I elected to use the time there to refocus my efforts. However, it wasn't long before I inadvertently stumbled upon the direction I needed to go. My apartment was in the older part of the city. The building itself looked like it had been built in the 20s. Art Deco style brickwork created a small, gorgeous arch above every windowsill. But every beautiful thing must pay a price. Every window in that building was original. The thin glass provided very little in terms of insulation, and the molding hadn't yet been refurbished. This led in a terrible draft and also caused an unfortunate leak whenever it rained. On one such occasion during an afternoon spring shower, in an effort to stop the water from entering my living space, I pressed a towel firmly against the molding of the window. As I pressed, the sound of terrible thunder roared outside. The intensity of the rain could only be described as ferocious. Suddenly, there was a crack of lightning. It was so close that I was startled. Losing my balance for a split second, I put my full body weight against the battered window frame. I felt the entire thing give way. It tumbled down three stories and shattered upon hitting the ground. I hung up a spare blanket over the window in an attempt to shield my apartment from the elements. But as I did, I noticed that on the outer part of the bricks, there were strange etchings. The symbols looked like some kind of ancient Greek, though the scratches looked fresh. I finished hanging the blanket and proceeded to call maintenance. A half an hour later, there was a knock at my door. That was when I met Gavin McDouglas. He was a weedy-looking fellow, short, rail-thin, with long arms, wearing a set of dirty blue coveralls with his name on the front. His hair was thick and bushy glasses covered his dark brown eyes. He carried with him an air of superiority that permeated the room from the moment that I saw him. I invited him inside. The rain was letting up, so I pulled away the newly soaked spare blanket and allowed him to look at the damage. He looked at me as though I had murdered his close relative. What happened? He demanded. I recounted to him my experience and with a huff, he stormed out. 
A few moments later, he burst through my door, dragging an entire window frame on a cart behind him. Leave, he demanded. I was so stunned by his bluntness that I did exactly what he said. I got up and left. I decided that the best place for me to go was a small coffee shop that I had become acquainted with during my stay. I sat with the strange encounter while sipping a macchiato. My mind became engulfed by questions. Why was Gavin so upset? Why was the window so loose? What were those strange symbols? My imagination went wild. And that's when I realized a man who provides more questions than answers is the man I really needed to speak to. I finished my coffee and walked back to my apartment. When I arrived at my place, I walked over to inspect the window. It was firmly set. I pressed on the sides to test its strength. It wouldn't be falling out again anytime soon. I glanced out the windows at the brick. I could no longer see the symbols on the sill. Strange. After grabbing my interview tape recorder, I wandered downstairs looking for Gavin. I soon found him in a cramped little office in the back room. His space was cluttered with spare parts and old papers. He sat at a metal desk with a small rolling chair with stuffing coming out the back side. He looked at me with disdain. What? He honked. I introduced myself and explained that I was interested in talking to him. His demeanor changed. He looked at me as if he wasn't surprised that I wanted to talk to him. I set out my recorder and pressed record. What initially brought you to Utica? I asked. Immediately, Gavin's expression fell from a grin to a frown. His eyes were pointed, staring into my soul. I felt something strange about this man. My initial curiosity had transformed into uncomfortable silence. He then said, I know why you're here. Ask me your real questions. I stood there for a moment, not fully comprehending the nature of his meaning. The feeling that I was in danger began to creep up on me. Was this man just unpleasant to be around? I had dealt with unpleasant people before, but this didn't feel like that. Well, uh, I could barely utter the words. What are you afraid of? I felt an immense pressure build between Gavin and I. The tension was thick. I don't know what he was about to say, but I knew that whatever his answer was, it was something that he had been planning on saying for a long time. What am I afraid of? Gavin hissed out. Let me ask you this. Why should I be afraid of anything? I was taken aback. Surely you must be afraid of something, I replied back. Fear is a natural human emotion. That was when Gavin's countenance changed. Though I knew that the environment around me hadn't changed, the intense eye contact that I was maintaining with him created a tunnel effect in my vision. Everything around Gavin seemed to fall away, and his eyes appeared to get darker. I think you're asking the wrong question, Tibbs, Gavin said through an evil smile. Fear comes from not knowing, not understanding. 
Do you really think that a person who says that they are afraid of the dark is afraid of the concept of darkness? No. They are afraid of what is in the darkness. So what happens when they turn on the light and they see that nothing is there? All of a sudden that fear is gone. So if there's a way to understand fear, then why would I be afraid of anything? I was puzzled by this line of thought. There had to be more to his answer than this. All that build up just to say that he had no fear? After a brief moment, Gavin interrupted my train of thought by continuing. The question you should be asking, Tibbs, is what is in the dark beyond where the light can reach. I felt like I couldn't move. Our interlocked gaze felt like a chain tethering my attention to Gavin. I could no longer perceive anything in that office but him. There was nothing except Gavin. I felt as though I was being held in place by the intensity of his stare, and if I looked away, I would fall into the abyss. Desperate. And to my great regret, I uttered these fateful words. Show me what's in that darkness. Charlie, I do not wish to write the rest of this experience in a single letter. If the details I'm leaving you fell into the wrong hands, the results would be disastrous. My hope is that you will put these letters into the right hands. Perhaps with the correct help, you may begin to reverse the damage I've done. I'm sorry. Caleb Tibbs. Okay, this is so cool. Because nobody really knows anything about what happened that year. That yeah. year of 1993 when he disappeared. Right. And so if this is really from him, if this is really from Tibbs, and it's really from 1993... This is the last known communication he made with anybody. And I think it's been here since then, based on, like, the dust, dust <laughs> and, like, the situation, like, this ancient bookkeeper, you know? Like, it feels like a weird, like, 90s kids movie almost. Like, a weird Disney, like, kids movie, you Dude, know? we're in the Goonies right now. <laughs> we're in the Page Master. <laughs> Dude, it's... So, I, I don't know. I'm just, like, amped about this right yeah, now. Yeah, same. But I will say that, like... This letter has way more questions than it has answers. Yeah. I mean, Nancy. Who's Nancy? Who's Nancy? Like, you know. Who, who, like, are we talking about Charlie Grant? I'm assuming. The editor? Yeah, I'm assuming. Which, also, that brings up another thing I was thinking about. Uh, based on our research, it seems like they had a falling out. Charlie right. and Tibbs had a falling out in between, in, in between books five and six. Right. And this letter is dated after that falling out. Right. So is this how he was trying to communicate with him? Dude. You know, and how did it end up in a copy of his his third book, not his latest book right. at the time of writing this letter, his third book in this old bookshop in Georgia when everything he's talking about happened in New York? Yeah. That's something that's been scratching at my brain a little yeah. bit. Because uh, during this letter, he talks about this Gavin guy. Right. And, like... That all takes place in New York, mm -hmm. but we don't really get, like, a resolution as to, like, right. what happened there. Where did he go? Yeah, like, 
So I don't know. I'm just ex- we. I don't know what the next steps are. I I don't either. But you know? uh, this brings up a lot of questions. But I think that we have more of a heading than we ever had before. Right. So, Cami, we're gonna like draft up a little proposal. We might be rethinking our journey a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, watch your email. We'll hop on a call. We'll get it figured out. Yeah. So we'll talk to you soon. This is really exciting. We're so. We're so ready for whatever's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So we'll talk soon. Yeah, see you, Cammy. Bye. Lower 48 is a production of Winterhawk Podcasting, written and presented by Zach Berry and Austin Meredith, with music by Tyra Orgill. To learn more about our other great podcasts, go to winterhawkpodcasting.com.